this great saint, um, this great man of God, this man, the Apostle Paul, who is in prison as he writes, awaiting possible execution, but you cannot keep him down. He's just, his, his joy just keeps bubbling over. And he also wants the Philippian Christians to be happy. And uh, that's how it begins when we start. It's been coming up again and again all the way through the last couple of chapters. But it comes through again here, Philippians 3. So we're going to read the first seven verses. Finally, my brothers. Um, you know he's only halfway through. So <laughs> um, he's a true preacher when he says, finally. And lastly, um, I think actually the word can have other translations, like moreover, that kind of stuff. So maybe he was. But also he's dictating these things often out loud to somebody sat there. And you know he wasn't like... He had multiple drafts. It wasn't like when you can go back and check your email for typos and all the rest of it and juggle your paragraphs around. This is all just coming out of him to a guy writing it down on a piece of paper to be sent to Philippi. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe he thought this was the last thing he was going to say. Uh, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, be happy. It's a command. I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy in Jesus. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Interesting. What's he talking about? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Now, we need to just keep reminding ourselves this is basically about your happiness as a Christian. That's what's at stake here. Rejoice in the Lord. That's how he begins. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Christianity, of all religions, is, is essentially about you finding happiness um, at its heart because you find. All the things that make you happy. Ask, there's been actually an explosion of study of what, what brings happiness in the last sort of 15 to 20 years among psychologists. And they've been widely recognized that a lot of the ancient wisdom about happiness is true. That the things that particularly that we see offered in Christianity are the very things that make you happy. Things like the experience of love. We, we, we recognize that the love of God for us is the most controlling thing in our lives when we become Christians. The experience of community, of being among people who, are, who become family to you, of having a purpose in life, of being able to say, I know what I'm living for and what its end is and, what it's, and it gives me significance in every day as I go about my life. Of the experience of security, particularly, of course, security beyond death. I mean, the, the way that fear can be controlled, diminished, and even crushed in your life is a phenomenal thing in the Christian life. The experience of forgiveness, having a clear conscience, you know, the worst stuff, the stuff that goes through your mind when you lie awake at night, being forgiven, wiped away. The experience of peace in your heart, that kind of settled peace where you just don't feel um, 
Like life is spinning out of control because you, you know God. You know the one who's in charge and you're at peace with yourself, at peace with others. And of course, freedom. Jesus offered freedom. And we could go on listing all the kind of stuff which Christianity is about, right? But here's the great conundrum. Christians aren't always happy people. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, here you are talking about Christianity as something happy. The Christians I know don't seem to be as happy as, as all that. Maybe they are. Maybe that's what's drawn you to church or drawn you to come and check it out. But often it's not the case, right? You ask yourself, well, how can it be that a faith offers all these things, all the things that are supposed to give you a sense of settled joy in your heart, even despite the turbulence of life, and yet so many Christians, on the other hand, are not happy. And the question we've got to ask is, is it a problem with the faith or is there a problem somewhere, a disconnection? And I think it's a problem with us. I have a friend who... Um, since he's been a young boy, he's now in his mid-twenties, mid to late-twenties, he will only eat breaded chicken. So like chicken nuggets or chicken goujons straight from the oven, and that is pretty much the entirety of his diet. Don't ask me about his bowel habits, I have no idea. (laughs) This is not obviously healthy, but the guy has got an issue with food. Now, this Friday, Sienna and I are going to be celebrating our... 10th wedding anniversary. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go out for a nice meal, as you do. Um, do that romantic stuff, you know. Um, if this guy were to somehow play third wheel on that date, it's not going to happen, but just, just hypothetically. And he was to try some of the tasting menu that we're going to indulge, the amazing courses, the creativity of the chefs, the amazing f- flavor pairings, and, and the sensations you know, the guy would not enjoy the meal. But would the problem be with the restaurant, with food, or is it with him? And we all know the answer, right? And I think a lot of the similar thing is going on at work in Christianity when what God offers is joy, happiness. But we fail to make the connections in our heart to enjoy his grace, his goodness to us in such a way that it changes our lives. So some people are Christians, but by the skin of their teeth. Just barely, because while they believe the basics of the Christian faith, it hasn't transformed their heart, hasn't made them the joyful and happy person that that Christianity promises to do in you. What then is the problem there? This is the question we're wrestling with today. What is it that steals our joy? What is it that is most likely to rob us of this kind of happiness, this settled joy in our faith? And we're going to bring it down to just one answer. It's captured by a word that's been coined called legalism. What does that mean? It basically means that when a person is trying to do good to win the approval of God, like he's a, an unkind or distant father who you're trying to please, that is at the root of most people's lack of joy in the Christian life. What is it? What are we talking about here, this legalism thing? Well, maybe here's an analogy that will help you out a little bit. The most of the economic world functions on the principle of free market capitalism, right? And capitalism has at its heart these kind of basic ideas that make the world spin around. It appeals to human desires, human motivations by by offering us, firstly, rewards for your effort. The harder you work, ideally, you should reap more rewards. 
It doesn't always work, but as a general principle, hardworking people prosper and they, they enjoy the rewards of their labors. Another thing is that it creates a kind of hierarchy among people so that you have those who have more and those who have less, those who are more successful, those who are less successful, those who are now more powerful and those who are less powerful. And a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, a lot of the dynamics are to do with your abilities, your gifts, your, your hard work, all these things that you put in, it creates this hierarchy. And then another third as- aspect to this is that there are symbols that mark you out. When you, the higher up the ladder you, you, you climb, certain symbols are attached to your position in society. You can kind of tell where someone sits, basically by even how they walk, um, how they dress, the watch that's on their wrist, the, uh, the postcode that's on their address, um, whether they uh, drive a Skoda or a Jaguar or a Rolls-Royce or whether they uh, go away from London at the weekends to get on their yacht, these kinds of things. Symbols, we call them status symbols, right? So you've got rewards for effort, you've got hierarchy, and then you've got symbols that, that mark people out. Now listen, that is basically the same way just about every religion on the planet works. Except replace wealth and money and all that with goodness, spirituality, um, sort of attainment in the faith, right? And this is how they work. You reward effort, you create a kind of hierarchy based on your attainments, and then there are certain symbols that get attached to people who have climbed higher up, you know, like massive beards or, um, <laughs> or specially colored clothes or um, little hats or... Uh, certain types of jewelry or, you, you know, certain, you know, um, marks on your skin that show how often you, you, you pray and get down on your forehead or these kinds of things. All these things become symbols of what you have attained in your faith. That's just about how every religion on the planet works. And it's not just how the official religions work. It's also how people popularly conceive of what spirituality is, even if they're not particularly spiritual. Most people understand a, a kind of in a core instinctual way that there's, there's a scale from very good to very bad and that you're somewhere along that scale and that there is the kind of these popular terms that, that people use like, uh, that, that capture those, that idea, like what goes around comes around. You hear, hear that regularly, right? People believe that what goes around comes around, that what you put in, you get out. If you're a bad person, it's going to come back and bite you. If you're a good person, it's going to come back and, and be a blessing to you. Now, why do we think that? Because people vaguely unthinkingly believe in, that there must be some kind of higher power keeping score, uh, ranking people, assessing people, putting people on a kind of spectrum. You've got um, sayings like, he got what's coming to him. It's always used badly, isn't it? He got what's coming to him because, you know, that guy was living badly for years and eventually it caught up with him. People say, of all people, he deserved that. Or she deserved that. It's used of good, it's used of bad things. Of all people, he or she deserved that. Now, here's a crucial thing. This stuff, this way of thinking, seeps into the church. That efforts rewarded, that hierarchies exist, and that there are symbols attached to your attainments in the faith. Symbols, I mean, for these guys, what the particular issue is dealing with here in Philippi is circumcision. Praise God, that is never a symbol that's been attached to 21st century Christianity. But circumcision, 
They thought the godlier you are, the more likely you are to get circumcised. So guys going around preaching, you have to be circumcised to be a true Christian because you've got to join the people of Israel. You've got to become a Jew, basically, to, to believe in Jesus. That was what Paul was dealing with here. But it can be so much more subtle than that. Symbols like a particular way of speaking or a tone of voice. We all do it almost subconsciously that we have your kind of prayer voice. You ever heard your prayer voice? It's more, it's more exaggerated in certain kinds of churches, but people have that kind of religious voice, don't they? We gather here today to offer the Lord, and we pray in these kind of these, these tones and these ways of speaking, or we have our kind of, the, you know, I never want you to be self-conscious when you come to church. Like, like sat there, stood there thinking, you know, oh no, I can't, I can't worship God with my hands raised because then people will think that I'm just doing it to show. You don't want to get into those kinds of tricky mind games. But people do, we do, engage in kind of fake symbols of spirituality, don't we? It's much easier to wear your spirituality like a, like a garment than to actually be changed in the heart. And you can have these kind of s- symbols of spirituality that aren't necessarily reflecting what's really going on inside you. Um, the way you pray, the way you worship, the way you talk, um, the way you, you, know, you, you, you address people, you know, God bless you, brother, that kind of thing. And I, you know, I want us to bless each other, and I want us to call each other brother and sister, and it's wonderful to be a family, but how easy those words can trip off the tongue without necessarily being indicative of your, your heart's condition. So don't think that this is just a first century thing. And don't think it's just about circumcision, which it was then. It is so much more in us than we realize. And that's why I want us to begin. I'm going to try and just draw out three big ideas from this text. And and we're just going to try and smash this in our hearts today. I want to go hard after this because we have to keep coming back here. The first thing we've got to say is that you are easily seduced into this thing called legalism. It might be the first time you've ever heard the word, but I'm telling you, you're easily seduced into it. A couple of ways I can just prove that from what Paul's saying here. A couple of indicators in the passage um, that tell us how much he just knew that this was the automatic way that the human mind works. And the first is that he repeats himself. Did you notice at the start when he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What does he mean to write the same things to you? Well, what you can gather from this is that Paul has told them this stuff umpteen times already, both when he was there in person preaching to the Philippian church and in maybe previous letters that no longer exist that he's written to them. It's no trouble to me, he says, to keep repeating myself. I need to keep repeating myself. Now, generally speaking, <coughs> we're not great fans of repetition. At risk of sounding like a total nerd, because I know I referenced Star Wars last week, but I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> Do you remember, those of you who've watched it, you know, the cool guys among you, if you've seen the first, the first episode that was ever released, George Lucas, the, by George Lucas, The New Hope, episode four in, in the great saga that is Star Wars, and it, it circles around the construction of the DS-1 orbital battle station, more commonly known as the Death Star. This thing was a planet-sized object in space that could fire laser powered by kyber crystals to destroy an entire planet, and it cost a trillion galactic credits, which I assume is a lot, because that's a big number. So a trillion galactic credits for this, this thing. And as the story progresses, 
You should have seen it, so I'm going to ruin it for you because there's no there's shame on you if you've not watched it already. <laughs> but there's a scene in the film where Luke, this, uh, this, this Jedi, um, or about to be Jedi, uh, is flying an X-Wing down a kind of trench in the surface of this planet-sized uh, spaceship. And he's got to fire his torpedoes down a vent to create a chain reaction that will blow up the whole thing. And the computer is not very accurate, and he hears this voice, use the force, Luke. And at that minute, every hair on your body is standing on end. You feel, you feel like you're in there in the cockpit. And I tell you, I relived this dozens of times in the 90s playing X-Wing on my IBM 486. It was, it was part of my childhood. We had the joystick and everything, and I would destroy the Death Star multiple times using the force, of course. And I've got, it's a wonderful, amazing storyline. The imagination, the originality, absolutely spectacular. And then two films later, the, the Empire decide they're going to give it another go. They build a second Death Star. At which point you're thinking, okay, cool, but you know, I really hope they can, they can get it this time because those things are dangerous. And of course, the rebels, the, al- the alliance forms, and they blow up the Death Star for a second time. And you're like, yeah, the rebels, go. And then a couple years ago, another Star Wars f- film came out, Episode 7. And weirdly, they couldn't think of anything else to do but make another Death Star. <laughs> And then for there to be a fight to get to the chain react, the core of the Death Star and, and create a chain reaction and blow the thing up. And you're scratching your head thinking, I'm pretty sure I've seen this twice before. <laughs> and repetition is not something we, we generally delight in, right? Because it's, it just shows it, it doesn't keep our interest. It doesn't excite new imagination. It seems to, to speak of a, a lack of, especially in a world like ours, where we are constantly loving the new and the kind of uh, the shiny and you know every you know there are multiple fashion cycles now within a fashion cycle it is practically you cannot keep up um, as you can see I'm a slave to that stuff <laughs> you, you cannot keep up with with the world as it is and but here's the thing what Paul's saying he, he repeats himself because he's saying this stuff you've got to learn this stuff because it, because it doesn't come naturally like learning French do you remember when you were in your French classes at school and you had to go through those verb tables and you're like, je suis, tu es, uh, il est, is that right? Nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont. And you go through, je suis, tu es, il est, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont. So I'm just checking my notes, making sure I get that right. And you drill it in by constant, constant repetition until you can say, I'm going to the swimming pool. And then you feel like you've mastered the whole thing. That's how the Brits learn French. But you see, learning, learning how grace works in the Bible is like learning a new language because it's not your first language. Learning how God loves us in a free way is not our first language. Our first language is legalism, is law, is understanding that we have to earn our place before God. So that's why Paul repeats himself. He says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me is safe for you. He repeats himself. Here's the second thing. Paul repeats himself. He says, he keeps saying, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's saying to them again and again, listen to me. This is, this is the kind of thing I get when uh, he gives me a ring. I'm heading home. She wants me to pick something up from the shop. She says it multiple times because she's, she knows I didn't hear it the first time or wasn't actually properly listening. So she's saying it again, and Paul wants to get your attention. This is why he's using repetition. This is why he's keeping hammering in. And I want to ask you the question, why? 
Why is it such a big deal that he needs to take his hammer and smash again and again and again? All through his letters, all through the New Testament, why is this such a big deal? And the only answer I think we can come to is because we are so prone to returning to this way of thinking as our just basic, what I want to call the default mode of the human heart. A default is what you return to naturally without any effort to alter. We used to own a a Skoda, and this Skoda always wanted to turn left. I mean, if you're driving along the motorway, if you just let go of the steering wheel for a second, the car would start to turn left, which is useful when you're going left, but not so useful when you're driving straight. So the entire time, I had to hold the steering wheel down with my right hand keeping it anchored so that we would drive in a straight line. Now, what I'm trying to help you see there is that the car had a default mode. If you let go of the wheel for one second, it's going to veer off to the left. And the human heart is very much like that. Your default mode, without conscious understanding, without renewed learning, without repetition, without renewed amazement, actually, is that you are going to slip back into legalism, even if you don't call it that, even if you don't even understand it. That's the way you think. That's the instinctive way that your heart feels about your relationship with God unless, unless God overcomes that by his spirit, by his word. Why is it the default mode? I think a couple of things you could say on that. One is that it just seems to align with nature. The world works this way. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, cause and effect. You reap what you sow. It's built into nature. So we naturally assume we naturally assume that the way, the spiritual way, is going to work in exactly the same way. And here's another thing. It aligns with all of our moral instincts. Our love of fairness. Our love of justice. You know, that kind of popular idea that people believe in something like karma, even if, even if they've never studied Eastern religions. So that anything else just doesn't make sense to our hearts. This is the natural way we think. This is why when when Jesus starts talking about how grace works, people genuinely are just incredibly baffled and confused. In Matthew 20, he tells a story about um, a guy who goes goes to hire laborers for his vineyard in a marketplace. Hires them at nine in the morning, I think at, well, six in the morning, nine in the morning, midday, three o'clock, six in the evening. And all through the day, he's offering... He comes and says, come and work for me, come and work for me. When he finally comes to paying them at the end of the day, every one of them gets the same wage. In other words, the, the bounty of God on your life is not to do with how much you put in. And it's meant to shock people. It's meant to make you stop and think, flip, this is, why is God so lavishly gracious towards us and also just so incredibly unfair? And that's the point. You want to default back towards, okay, those who've worked longer and those who've worked harder get paid more. Those who've worked less get paid less. Jerry Bridges wrote a book that was massively formative for me. I read it probably about 14 years ago called The Discipline of Grace. He was um, a Bible teacher who just taught on these things 
so much over the years. And his book, The Discipline of Grace, just boils it down to just such a clear presentation of what we're trying to discuss here. Get it, buy it, read it, digest it. But in there, he, tells, he, he t- describes this in terms of our daily experience of walking with God in this way. He says, you know, for some of us, we, on certain days, you wake up and you, you wake up at the right time. You get up and you, you pray. You read your Bible. You're doing the things that you think a Christian ought to do. And uh, you're full of joy as a result. And if in that day you get an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, tell someone about Jesus, you think, God's going to bless me today. God is blessing me. And that you feel his blessing. And then there are other days you wake up, and you know, this might be four times out of five for most, many of us, where you oversleep, you hit the snooze without even remembering having done it. You rush out the house. You never get to exchange a word with God. And you, you feel flustered and frustrated and annoyed. And then London makes you more angry. And then you arrive at your desk and your colleagues make you more angry. And then you escape into Facebook and social media whenever you can. No one's looking. And, you, and by the time you get to the end of the day, you feel absolutely rubbish, annoyed with yourself, annoyed with the world. And uh, you've had a bad day. Now, if a, if a friend on the way home says, you know, tell me, tell me about your faith. You feel, you feel so pants, you, you think, there's no way God can bless me at this minute. And most of us connect God's blessings and our, our ability to serve him with our obedience. Now, I don't want to say that those two things are entirely unrelated. I think there is some kind of relationship in the New Testament. But the unfathomable grace of God is so deep that the way Jerry Bridges put it, uh, if I can find where I wrote that down, which I probably can't. Here it is. He said, Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's great grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Your worst days don't make you beyond his reach. And your best days don't make you self-sufficient so that you don't need him anymore. You are easily seduced into legalism. That's the big, that you've got to take that home with you and recognize that that's true of you because you need to see it in your heart whenever it begins to crop up. So let me bring you to a second thing. You need to keep seeing then how worthless and how destructive this way of thinking is. Now Paul gets really hot under the collar here. I don't know if you, you really paid much attention to it, but he calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. Most people would assume that calling names means that you cannot possibly even be a Christian. Here is Paul doing all this name calling in the Bible. Dogs. Dogs are what the Jews called the Gentiles. And here is Paul calling the Jews, his, 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 his compatriots by nationality, dogs. He's flipping the terms around. Why does he do that? Because he then goes on and says, we're the circumcision." They think it's the other way around. The Jews who are going around telling all the Gentiles to get circumcised, they say, we're the circumcision and you're the dogs, so you need to become the circumcision by getting circumcised. And Paul says, no, you're the dogs, we're the circumcision who recognize that those things are now worthless before the living God. Why does he do that? He wants to make it massively clear just how frustrated he is and how wrong they are, how puddled they are. It reminds me a little bit of how, in our day and age, the so-called liberals have become the bigots, and then they call everyone else bigots, don't they? And you think, actually, we need to switch those terms around. 
you, you cannot tolerate anyone who disagrees with you. Therefore, you are the bigots and not, not everyone else that you're pointing at. And it's kind of that kind of dynamic going on here. He calls them evildoers. If you met these guys, I promise you, you would not think they were evildoers. You would think that they are the best people in the church. We imagine these kind of caricatures of what people like this, called the Judaizers, what they would be like. Kind of angry and annoyed with everyone and going around chopping people's foreskins off and that kind of thing. And actually, no, they would have been, they would have been nice guys. They would have been winsome, persuasive, and upright, so much so that you want to be like them, enough that you would pay the price. A high price. Right? If they didn't have anything going for them, no one would listen to them. But Paul calls them out and says, no, they are evildoers. He calls them mutilators, which sounds like a barbarian warlord's name, doesn't it? The mutilator. And he's really wanting to lay it on thick, and he asks himself, why? Why is he so passionately concerned to tell how, much, how, how bad their way is in, co- in comparison with the true way that God's given us? And the answer is because, friends, he says, I've tried it. I've tried it, and it doesn't work. He speaks like an expert. Did you, did you notice this? It sounds almost arrogant, doesn't it? Except when you understand why he's doing it. How he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. By which he means, I have reason for confidence in all my kind of credentials as a Jew. He starts to list them. He's got the right lineage. Having come from an, an exceptional tribe. And being a pure Israelite, he calls himself an eighth day is a literal translation. In other words, I wasn't just circumcised later in life. I was circumcised as a baby, which is the right way. So he's got the right lineage. He's got the right kind of uh, denomination because he was a Pharisee, which was like the ultra elite. These are the guys who, who were recognized for being the, the most brilliant of all, of all the religious folk in Israel. He has the right zeal, he says. He's as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which actually, in his context, was a badge of honor. In the Old Testament, certain people are marked out for their zeal in honoring the glory of God and protecting the purity of Israel. And Paul's saying, I'm like those guys. I was like those guys. And he says, as to the law, blameless. So he's got, he's got this purity. He doesn't mean I was totally perfect. He means, in terms of my ability to keep the statutes of the law to the letter, I was that guy. Everything about my life was right. He speaks, though, as one who has exhausted the depths of where that road takes you and realizes it gets you nowhere. It's like the, the super rich guy who just candidly admits that money doesn't make you happy and warns the kind of hungry young market trader who's working his way up to be the next Lord Alan Sugar. Don't, don't, don't be fooled. He's that guy. He's like the rock star who's had a different girl every night for, for years, warning the horny teenager, you won't, be, you won't find intimacy on this road. He's like, it reminds me of that time when Matt Damon sat on the, the Graham Norton show and was interviewed about his experience of winning an Oscar in his 20s. Most people, it's the pinnacle of their career, way, way, way later in the game. And Matt Damon got it all up front because of his brilliance in, in Goodwill Hunting. And, and Graham Norton asked him the question, 
that night must have sent you into a tailspin. Did you go crazy that night? And Matt Damon just has this kind of, um, this wisdom that, that almost came to him like a, like a revelation on that very night when he won the Oscars. He tells a story, he says, I couldn't sleep, I was still buzzing and just sitting there. And I remember very clearly looking at that award and thinking very, very clearly, thank God I didn't do anybody over for this. I thought, imagine chasing that and not getting it, and getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste. And Paul kind of speaks with that, that same sense of experience, of pathos, of wisdom, when he, he lists all his credentials and says, do you know what it actually did? He's, he's kind of, this is implicit. He's saying it, it turned me into a racist because... I was so Israelite, I didn't love anyone else. It turned me into a proud man because I was so much a Pharisee that I thought myself better than everybody else. Isn't this what religion does to your heart? It made him into a persecutor because he was so zealous for God's glory that he was actually inflicting damage on on the Christians, chasing them, wanting them to be stoned, wanting to kill them. And it made him judgmental of others. So you ask yourself, is all your effort in the rat race to please God by these kind of external marks of obedience, does it really change your heart? In other words, does law keeping make you any closer to God? Does behaving Christianly make you more spiritual? Some of you maybe aren't Christians, and that's what your, your assumption is. In order to know God, you have to behave Christianly. Now, God, don't get me wrong, God wants to change your life. He wants to totally change your life, but he doesn't do it the way you think from the outside in. I change my behavior first, and eventually, maybe I'll be acceptable to God. He does it from the inside out. He gets right into you and starts rewiring you from the inside so that your transformation is an automatic product of the change he's brought about in your heart. You want to do things that please God because you love him. Not because you're working your way in. Not because you're trying harder and harder. Not because by the sweat of your brow you're going to make it and be, climb up that ladder, that kind of capitalist hierarchy that exists in, in faith, in religion. Which only makes people into elitist, proud, and judgmental religious folk. Or crushes you, crushes you under the burden of failure. That's the only thing that comes of that way of life. Which brings us to the last thing that Paul says. He says that Jesus offers you something vastly superior. It's always shocking when successful people seemingly throw away their attainments. When you, know, you hear Bill Gates giving away his vast, vast empire of wealth. Or you, you know, this week hit the news that Daniel Day-Lewis is retiring from acting at 60. He's in his prime. I mean, this is the last of the Mohicans. He can't retire. And yet, here he is. He's, for whatever reasons, no doubt personal things, why would you do that? Why would you say all of that I'm going to put aside in preference for something else? The answer is because you think you found something better. It's the only reason, right? You think you found something better. Whatever that might be. 
And that's what Paul says when he says, whatever gain I had, in other words, all my years of having a spotless record, of being the absolute creme de la creme, the elite Pharisee, trained in the best school of Pharisees by the best rabbi among Pharisees, all of that, he says, I accounted. He uses this kind of accounting term, profit and loss. And he says, all of it, I put it all in my loss column so that I could put in my, in my profit column Jesus Christ. I threw it all away so that I could have Jesus. I think we find this incredibly difficult to do in practice. One of the reasons is the dynamic of what they call sunk cost bias, which is, it basically goes like this. Imagine you, for a year, you decide to put away um, £10 a week uh, to go on a holiday to Butlins. And so you save up your £500 and you, by the sweat of your brow, you have saved up enough money to go to Butlins and see the Redcoats performing and go on one of the little bumper rides and that kind of stuff. And you're excited about it because you've not been before. And then one day you, you, you send off, in, in a moment, you send off a thing in the post and you end up with winning a prize to go to Centre Parks, which is like Butlins, but for the middle class, right? And you, uh, you win the prize. It's worth, it's worth 1,500 quid. You've got a villa. You've got access to all the beautiful facilities. But here's the problem. You have to go on the same week when you've booked your Butlins holiday. Do you know most people still go to Butlins in that scenario? Bizarre, right? It's because of what they call sunk cost bias. I've put so much into this that I can't let go of this in order to have this better thing. And you know, I think it's a very similar dynamic that goes on in the human heart when it comes to working, working, working to attain my righteousness before God, legalism, versus Jesus has done it all for me. Because, you know, to, to have Christ, you've got to, you've got to trash all that. You've got to say all of that is worthless, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. There's a pride element that goes on our hearts that we, we want our effort to count before God. We want to earn it. We want to make much of ourselves when we stand before the living God. We want to. That's the instinct of the heart. And Paul's clear. He says, friends, it's an either or. I, whatever gain I had, he said, I counted as loss. I put it in the loss column for the sake of Christ. That he alone would be my gain. And here's the thing. It's an either or. Either you say, I'm going to be the person who improves my life so that I will be, I'll be able to say I'm good at the end of the day. I will do it. Or you accept Jesus. How can it be that simple? I don't understand. Because either you're the person who stands before God and says, look what I have done. Or you stand before God and say, look what Jesus has done for me. Very few people understand this. Most people assume that Christianity is about something completely different. They think it's all about this, the working harder, the, the attainment, the, 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 the improving yourself. Which is why they're often so put off it, because they think, I can't possibly do that. And anyway, there's too much stuff I want to enjoy in life. And they don't realize it's about God invading your heart and transforming you from the inside when you surrender to Jesus as your Savior, the one who died for your sins and gave you his gift, which is his goodness, his righteousness, his record, 
so that one day you'll stand before God. And you won't have to plead your worthiness. You only have to plead his blood. That shouldn't be a difficult choice. Why is it? Jesus told a parable about a guy who finds a pearl which he reckons to be of inestimable worth. He said, what would he do in that situation? He would sell all he has so that he could buy that pearl. He tells a story of someone who finds treasure buried in the field. He says, what would he do? He would sell all he has and go and buy that field so that he can possess the inestimable worth, the value, the wealth of what he's just found. Everything you have up to this point is worthless in comparison to Jesus. There are these a couple of places in the world where it's reckoned that pirates have buried treasure. Uh, there's Money Island in North Carolina and Oak Island off the coast of Canada. And these places have been subjected to a series of different people, treasure hunters, sometimes wealthy people who have engaged in expeditions to find this treasure. In Oak Island, it's had a few significant different purchases who bought the place, invested in digging equipment, excavations to, to try and find the treasure that's supposedly buried. Because when you find everything that you have up to now is worthless in comparison with that. And Jesus is saying, when you understand what Christ is about, what he's done for you, when you will, you'll trash everything so that you can have him. So that you can have what Paul describes here. We're the circumcision, he says, who worship by the Spirit. When you gain Christ, you gain the power of God in your life to bring about the change that you want. Who glory, he says, in Christ Jesus. In other words, boast in his righteousness on my behalf. So that really, friends, he's done it all for me. And who put no confidence in the flesh who experience a totally clear conscience, totally clear conscience, because it was never about you, and it was always about him. We are going to, we're going to respond in worship. We've got a few songs. And we have communion to enjoy together as well. I also just want to encourage you, friends, Maybe you realize and you recognize in yourself that tendency, that default tendency to return, maybe as a Christian, to slip back into those, those ways of thinking where you feel like you're walking through life under a cloud. Because you're seeing your failure, your mistakes, your sins, as well as your failed efforts to do what's right. And you think that God is far from you. Many, many Christians go through life feeling that way. It's a tragedy. We all feel it from time to time, I think. And God wants to blow away the clouds so that he can let the sunshine of his love, the sunshine of his grace, shine upon you so that full face you can look at him with a clear conscience again and say, it was always about Jesus. It was never about me. Maybe you are not a Christian. You can't say that you've ever surrendered your life to God. You've ever asked for forgiveness. You've ever asked for access to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. 
Maybe you've been laboring under that wrong understanding of what the Christian faith is. You've thought, in metaphorical terms, that you'd have to get circumcised if you were going to become a Christian. In other words, you'd have to do this kind of external behavior modification. And you don't realize that it's about coming to know a person who is a savior. And if you've perhaps realized that for the first time and thought to yourself, I think I, I want that. I want to know forgiveness. I want to know what he's done for me. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. It would be my absolute privilege to try and explain it more or to answer any questions. And I'll just be here at the front and I'd love to talk with anyone who's in that place. Why don't we just pray in the quiet for a minute while the band get ready. Lord Jesus, we want to confess, those of us who who know you, Lord, how easily we minimize your achievements for us by thinking that we have to do something, that we have to earn the goodness, the love of God on our lives again. And Lord, we want to say sorry. Lord, how easily we flip back into this faulty way of thinking. We want to open our hands and our hearts to you today and ask you, Lord, will you please break through the clouds? Will you please help us to understand in a fresh way what your grace means, what it means to rest in the love of a Father who is kind towards us. And I pray, Lord, that you do a supernatural work in hearts right now to actually change the way we think and feel about and understand our relationship towards you. Lord, not so that we can then engage in, you know, as Paul puts it, so that we'll sin more, so that your grace will be more abundant. But Lord, so that we will genuinely just be changed by the experience of your love, by the experience of your kindness to us. And so we come to you, Lord, we want to we wanna take communion to remember the all-sufficiency of Jesus, his kindness, his love. So bless us, we pray, as we do this, and help us to worship you with the right response now. In Jesus' precious name, I pray, amen.